So we're finishing up this month exploring wisdom. And I thought actually I would do kind of the opposite of wisdom, which is delusion. I know we did that just the month prior, but I actually missed out on giving a talk on delusion. So I want to use that as a way of contrasting. When you have wisdom, the opposite is delusion and how they both kind of play off each other. Bring our attention to wisdom, bring our attention to delusion. Both are really the same process. And I'm going to be bringing some of this material I used over the weekend for those who came. I know a couple of you were at the Bellingham events. So I'll come, cover some of that again, but add some other elements I didn't get to. So I apologize for those, at least those two I can see, Monica and, and Carol. So delusion. The delusion is often personified in the suttas by this character called Mara. Mara is the kind of embodiment of delusion. So this is an externalization of what's internal to us, our own internal confusion and ignorance and doubt. All that kind of gets covered by this big blanket term delusion. Now, it's interesting to look at delusion as being something external to us. You know, on one hand, it gives us a chance to, to observe it, to maybe relate to it differently, versus when it's internally, it's sometimes so easy to get caught in, in judgment. On the other hand, we don't want to forget that it is an aspect of ourselves. So we don't want to be at odds with it. We also want to understand it. Because if we're at odds with it, we're basically taking a part of our minds and fighting against another part. Now, how do we relate to delusion is also really important. How do we work with it? Because we could have the attitude, you know, especially when we kind of personify it, like I'm going to fight against Mara and overcome him and, and banish him and all those kind of ideas. Sometimes that's helpful. But again, we can create this inner tension. And I prefer to look at it from a way that's often modeled in the suttas, and how the Buddha related to Mara, not as something to overcome, but more as something to understand, to see. Okay, to see Mara, to see delusion, is also allows us to wisdom to start to grow. You can see this in a couple of different areas. One is when the Buddha was on his night of awakening, he had this deep resolve to practice. And Mara didn't want him to, 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 to awaken, to become enlightened. So what he did is he threw his armies against the Buddha. This is an expression of the hindrances. So it's interesting, kind of a very uh, fun mythological way to look at it. So there's these, the armies of, of fear and attacking him that would like throw arrows at him, shoot arrows, and but they would turn just to, to, to flowers, really. Flower petals that would just rain down harmlessly. And the Buddha wasn't trying to fight against them or push them away but just had this clarity. He was holding on to this sense of, of centeredness and this sense of, of wisdom that he had, had cultivated. Same thing with the other hindrances of, of, of uh, craving. You know, he had seductive images to try to get the Buddha to come off his seat. And the final one, the big one, is when the Mara just came right out and said, you know, what, by what right do you have to awaken? What right do you have to take the seat of awakening? And the Buddha just reached down and touched the earth and said, by the earth, by the earth's witness, by the witness of the earth, that's why I claim this, this seat of awakening. 
And this is such a great metaphor for us when we're caught in doubt, one of the hindrances, but also one of the manifestations of, of delusion, is we get confused. We lose our, our clarity. We lose how to practice. And just that sense of grounding, of touching the earth, is so valuable. I think walking meditation, for example, teaches us that ability just to be present one step at a time. The posture of sitting and having that uprightness, that sense of grounding into the earth, all powerful ways of connecting with what's true, connecting with what's actually wise and seeing through delusion. It's interesting to notice that once the Buddha awakened, it wasn't like delusion was all done for him. That Mara actually would kind of keep trying to come back at different times to try to trick the Buddha, to try to deceive him, to get other people to try to trick the Buddha. And for me, this is actually encouraging because sometimes you wonder, why do I keep having these patterns? So even the Buddha still had his own delusion coming up for a while after his awakening, as he integrated his insights, integrated his understanding. And as, he, as the Mara was trying to trick him, the Buddha didn't like realize it and start to fight against him or wrestle with him. He just simply said, I see you, Mara. I see you. There's that clarity of seeing. And Mara would slink away discouraged, frustrated. Right? So the sense of just seeing our delusion, seeing it, without that fighting with it, not trying to overcome it, but yet not acting from it, not becoming lost in it. There's different ways we can look at delusion as as we did uh, two months ago. But there's three I'm going to bring out tonight. The way delusion shows up or manifests in our lives. And this is, you can flip, flip it on its head. How does wisdom stay removed or obscured? So the first element is the sense of obscuring, of hiding, of making things unclear. This is like sometimes here in Seattle, you get these, these foggy mornings where you just can't see very far. Like 20 feet is, is hard to see. And things that are used to be very familiar, like that street, the trees, the houses, suddenly they become obscured and you're not quite sure where you are, how far to go. Same way with delusion affects us at times, that we lose that clarity. We just don't know which direction. Things which seem so clear are no longer clear. And there's also the misinterpretation of things. So sometimes we actually see things, we think we're seeing it clearly, but we're really seeing it from a, a mistaken view or a mistaken interpretation of that. It's like seeing a, a bathrobe on a... Uh, chair at nighttime and it's dark and you think maybe it's some stranger who's sitting in your hall, but it's just your bathrobe. Just your, your mind has reinterpreted in a way that's, that's inaccurate. And finally, there's the actions that delusion drives us to do. Based on that misinterpretation, kind of turbocharges how we act. And of course, this is what causes uh, and reinforces the suffering in our lives. It reinforces the suffering, the hatred, the greed. Those all flow out of delusion. You know, this has been a terrible month or so with you know with the, all of the suffering, all the violence in Gaza, with what happened in Maine. It just this is an ongoing 
evidence of how delusion is still acting in our world, causing harm. So let's look into these for you a little bit, and then at the end we'll talk about ways to work with delusion. So this obscuring quality. So it's interesting if you can take the attitude of not trying to fight against delusion, but actually just try to observe it and sensing. It's actually interesting to watch how your mind goes through periods of clarity and periods of confusion. That sometimes our minds are just they're just kind of soggy. They're kind of just they're not quite sure what's happening. You know, after a big meal, you know, or after not resting very well, or something that's very stressful, we're exhausted. Our minds just get very kind of soggy and un- unclear. The Buddha talked about in the third foundation of mindfulness around being mindful of the mind itself, being mindful of how the mind is, is showing up, how it's shaped. And the Buddha in that sutta, I think very insightfully points to, notice the mind that's when it's contracted, notice when it's expansive. Notice when it's calm or when it's agitated. Any kind of duality you can put into it, the Buddha said, just notice that. He didn't once say, and make sure you judge those ones that are that are distracted or delusional. Make sure you praise the ones which are clear. He said, just notice that. He's asking us to step back into that quality of mindfulness, which simply opens to and knows how things are and resting in that. That's really going into the quality of wisdom, the wisdom of seeing. So when this quality of delusion is, is really present for us, it's hard to see through. It's hard to see what's going on. And if you recognize that, you can actually just step back and enjoy the fog. It's like, wow, this is really just a foggy mind right now. That in itself starts to bring curiosity and interest. It's like the sun starts to burn through that fog just from us paying attention. Like We might not be able to observe anything because our minds are too foggy, but we can observe the fact of fogginess. We can sense and perceive that fogginess. Just that switches us from being lost in delusion to actually bringing wisdom to helping that to grow. It's also interesting with this this sense of of obscuring. Sometimes this can be really dispersed almost in a moment, just in a moment of of clear seeing, a moment of clear inquiry, or sometimes just a moment of clear acknowledgement. If you look at the, the five hindrances, the sloth and torpor, I think, represents this quality of this obscuring aspect of delusion. I remember Sharon Salzberg once said that when you're feeling that sloth and torpor, that sleepiness of mind, and you're trying to meditate, sometimes just ask yourself, what would I be feeling if I wasn't sleepy? What would I be feeling if I wasn't sleepy? Right? So sometimes you ask that question and you realize, oh, I'll be feeling that sadness. I'll be feeling that anger, that fear. And that sleepiness kind of obscured or knocked it down, kind of made it um, not see. This is the, I think of it as the Wizard of Oz. And when the, the Wicked Witch had the poppies field go and everyone fell asleep and they just couldn't stay awake. 
It's like that knocking down, that dulling our attention. And so some start to notice that. I, I, in retrospect, I realized I did this as a strategy to avoid feeling anxiety when I was uh, a high school student going off to a swim meet and just feeling like I want to just take a nap instead of feeling the nervousness, the pre-meet jitters. Just disconnect, take a break. And sometimes this is skillful. Sometimes we need to do that. Sometimes that sense of disassociation or distancing is actually a way of our, our nervous system trying to accommodate something which is overwhelming. So I think it's also helpful to not fight against that or to judge it, but simply notice it. Uh, well, is it interesting what it feels like to be a little numbed out, to be a little distance from this experience? I see you, Mara. I see, I understand, I sense this. Another aspect of this, the same kind of quality of obscuring is around doubt, you know, this other hindrance. And this is, I think, one of the big guns that Mara often brings against us. There's this little sutta that's called Soma Sutta, that Mara meets his match. And this is a story around a, a nun who was practicing. So this nun Soma was practicing very deeply. And then Mara shows up and sees her there and desires to make her waver and abandon her concentration. He addresses her with a verse. That which can be attained by seers, the place so hard to arrive at, women are not able to reach since they lack sufficient wisdom. Right? So he's just... You know, pulling pulling that card, or that you know, women are not able to awaken and have a deep enough practice. And Soma responds, "What difference does being a woman make when the mind is well composed, when knowledge is proceeding on, when one rightly sees into the Dhamma? Indeed, for whom the question arises: Am I a man or a woman, or am I even something at all?" So she just. Had, did not waver with that. That's that confidence that I spoke about the last few weeks around wisdom, is that when you have that, when you see for yourself, it's unrefutable. You can't, someone can argue against you, but you just know in your bones what is true. You notice, you have that awareness of wisdom through your direct experience. So doubt or delusion as it comes at you just doesn't have a place to land. Now, delusion affects us personally. It affects us um, in different, like in our family. There's just this expression of delusion that each of our families have. There's an expression of delusion in culture, in society. Also in traditions, like in, in this tradition, that some people believe in our tradition that nuns can't, people shouldn't be, women shouldn't be able to become nuns. They shouldn't be able to ordain and, and that's, I think, an expression of delusion. That delusion is, is everywhere. And Mara has that quality of, of unfortunately really causing suffering that is, um, is very painful. So delusion in a way of obscuring, of covering up, of, of making things unsee- unseeable. Now the other aspect, another aspect of delusion is how it makes us misinterpret data misunderstand things. And this is really tied to action. 
So I remember my one of my uh, a friend, a teacher in a different arena, had uh, he had many many colorful stories, but he had inter- he had worked with in the circus, and he had a friend who had a collection of snakes that he would use as part of a a show, and he had a, a bino cobra. And so one night he was sleeping, and he sees the cobra out of his cage. And so he's obviously really afraid because it's sitting, it's right at the edge of his bed, like right there by his feet. And so he's afraid he's going to get bit. So he's, you know, taking his rope arbor and taking careful aim at that cobra. But right at the last minute, he realizes that's actually just my foot in a white sock. <laughs> and luckily he, he didn't act on that, that delusion. And this is, we have these humorous things if we were able to look at that. Sometimes I wake up, um, maybe I have a, a nightmare or something that's really gripping, and I jump up and I'm trying to stop the wall from collapsing or something like that. And eventually I sort of start to touch the wall and realize, well, the sense data is not matching my dream. My mind's idea of what here is not being matched by the sense data. Right? So this is the, the trick in... in practice and that one of the great benefits of being a meditator is we learn how to actually connect with this present moment. What's actually here right now? Our minds may be seeing all kinds of stuff is going on. And we can learn to acknowledge, okay, there is a fear, there is a thought, there is a story. But what's actually right here? A powerful way to start to move through delusion. that misperception goes very deep and it sometimes takes a tremendous amount of energy to start to see through. An example I often like to share is of that, that bridge in France that from the French side, they described it as being very strong and powerful and massive. And the German side of the, the same river, the other side of the, the bridge, same concrete, same steel, they described it as being graceful and elegant beautiful even. And the difference between the exact same concrete and steel and how it was interpreted was based on the gender, the gentrification of bridge. For German, it was uh, feminine, masculine for the French. And just this little programming from childhood changed the way Germans and French see the world. You know, we take that and extrapolate to our own lives things we don't even realize we're doing. You know, one, one area that we are becoming more and more aware of is the, the quality of systemic racism and how we look out in the world and we think, okay, everything, this is the way things should be. This is the normal way. But it's really just our narrow perception as, as if you happen to be white, everything's kind of aligned to help support you to make life a little easier. There's lots of privilege and things which are unseen. Talk to someone who is black or brown. They have a very different experience of that. They understand that there's this oppressiveness, this sense of systemic racism that just embedded into our culture. This is this quality of delusion that's woven through everything in our lives. And we bring attention to it. We start to see it. We start to dissolve it, and we do the hard work of, of going contrary to it.
no delusion from this sense of, of, of misperception then leads us into how we act from that, how we act based on that. Now the, back to our, our friends, the hindrances, the other ones of craving and aversion and restlessness and, and worry are ways that drive us to act. Right? We have a moment of craving. We want to follow that. We want to get more of that. We want to protect it, make sure it doesn't leave us. Right? That kind of clinging, that stickiness, that very palpable energy around it. A delusion often tells us, if I just get that last donut, then I'll finally be happy. I'll never need another donut. Right? <laughs> or if I finally get whatever that is, I get that, that right relationship, that right house, that right experience then I'll finally be happy. Right? That's what delusion speaks to us, and we, we believe it. <laughs> we get that thing and like, oh, this wasn't quite it. right. The next thing, that'll be it. Same thing with aversion. We find some, you know, we find, okay, if I just get rid of this one thing, if I don't have to talk to that person, if I don't have to do this, then I'll be happy. Right? Has anyone found that to be true, that you can get rid of that one thing and finally you're never unhappy again? Yeah, it's that, that trick. Mara is saying he's got, got us kind of reeling. And then restlessness and worry. That restlessness is a physical component. Mental aspect is worry. Same thing. We sometimes, if I can just shift, if I can get out of this position, if I can just solve something. Like if I don't worry, things will fall apart. You know, there's that sense of worrying helps to fix the future. Kind of bringing both of this misperception and the sense that it brings our actions forth is really described in an elegant and a precise way through dependent origination. There's these 12 links that the Buddha mapped out. Not to go into any detail with those, but just the broad brushstrokes around it. That they, the 12 links start with delusion. They start with the ignorance that misperception, that confusion, that way we are, are really unsure, we're not clear about how things actually are. What that does is it creates a way that we perceive the world. You know, the, our sense data, the way we identify things, the way we place it in memory is all kind of colored by delusion. And then from that point of, of relating to seeing from that misperception, then our actions flow from that usually toward craving or aversion. And we start to form a sense of self around that. That sense of self eventually has, has suffering with it. Sometimes during it, when we're having a painful sense of self, I'm depressed, I'm angry, I'm fearful. Or we feel the suffering when that sense of self, which was pleasant, of joy and happiness, fades. You know, so that's suffering. And then we misinterpret what caused that suffering which then leads back to ignorance. So it's, just, it's kind of a, if you look back, it's, look at it from a step back and look at it, it's really a, a nifty way to kind of keep generating this whole cycle of suffering. It keeps delusion going again and again. So why is delusion such, so much of a factor in our lives? You know, it really causes so much suffering, but why does it, we keep engaging in it? Why don't we see through it? causes separation and hatred and greed. 
You know, that very sense of self as an expression of delusion. It's even more curious, you know, basically we can look at this, this delusion makes us think, see things which are inherently painful as being pleasurable, things which inherently uh, are unsubstantial as being permanent, and something that's inherently empty of self as having a solid self. You know, there's so much of this energy is around that sense of selfing, around dukkha. It's really driven by delusion. And the interesting thing is really essentially trying to maintain something which is not really there. It's trying to maintain an illusion, that solid sense of self. Really trying to make something out of nothing. So this is quite a kind of a magic trick that we keep doing this. You know, so we have so much energy that we have to generate to make this work, to kind of overcome that. So we can think of Mara again, go back to that seeing Mara. Almost like, think of Mara as a someone we've hired, like a project manager, to kind of try to keep our sense of self intact. Right? So Mara's figured out a way to kind of get you riled up and get you engaged. And as you do that, when you go through those cycles, the very process of doing it actually reinforces the ignorance. So it just kind of keeps going. So as soon as, because it ties back into our suffering. So he's figure out a way to help that sense of self just keep generating to the next sense of self through, through suffering. Right? So until we, wisdom starts to come in and we start to see that whole process, start to see that illusion, start to see through that, it just keeps on going. So these three aspects of how delusion makes things obscured, how delusion changes the very kind of the facts of the matter, changes the way we perceive the misperception, and then how that misperception drives us to action. These are three ways. There's others, of course, but these three ways delusion arises. Learning to see it, like seeing more, I just notice it. That in itself is the most fundamental and most important part to learn to work with it. So three ways to work with it, in addition, is really making contact with the actual present moment. What's actually right here now? You know, so often we are kind of a little disconnected from our bodies, from our, from our experience. Like William, or um, James Joyce, I should say, had this character in Dubliners called Mr. Duffy. And this is the only thing I know from the book is that Mr. Duffy lived at a short distance from his body, right? So how often does that describe us? How often have we driven someplace or walked someplace and don't even realize how we got there? We just show up and we just traveled all this distance. We navigated all these different things. We saw all these different sites, but we're almost oblivious of them because we're lost in our thoughts, lost in fantasy, lost in worry whatever that might be, you know, those layers and thoughts and ideas, right? So learning how to actually make contact, what's actually here right now. Use our minds when we need to use our minds. When we need to solve something or figure something out, bring our, the 
the clarity of our minds, our problem solving, all the things we've honed and developed over the years of our our training or education or our just our experience. You know, bring that forth. We don't have to live that all the time. We don't have to be lost in that. I think that's one of the biggest things we look, one of the biggest things. I'm going to say that, I say that for many things, but one of the fundamental things we learn as meditators is the choice of not to have to be lost in our thoughts. We learn the choice not to believe in our thoughts. We learn the choice to actually embody, become embodied. We learn the choice to actually be present. And before we practice or develop that, it's often not a choice. We can't really choose to make contact in the way when we want to. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. Because so much of our life is spent being lost in thought, lost in, in concept and idea and worry and fantasy. So making contact with the present moment also means learning to see through our layers, our projection and idea of how things are. There's that that little poem I love to read, that everything we see carries the burden of what we know until we let it be itself again. Everything we see carries the burden of what we know until we let it be itself again. Walking the yard with coffee cooling in my hand, I stop at a single seat of hawksbeard balanced on a blade of grass. Except for paying attention, what else is continual prayer? That Samuel Green wrote that. Okay. Making contact with the present moment. The second part is just simply not believing everything we think. It's not believing everything that we think. Having a healthy skepticism of what our mind says is true, is, is uh, facts. Seem to see our biases, our prejudices, our preconceptions. Start to see that that's something we've layered on to reality. Right? Sometimes it's helpful. It helps us navigate the world, figure out what we need to pay attention to. And... A lot of the time, it actually creates the world, kind of held, holds it in our, our memory, in our history. So a simple way is to start to notice what you are believing in this moment. Okay? What am I believing is true in this moment? And start to hold it a little more lightly. Start to hold it with a sense of not being such an absolute truth, but maybe a relative truth. Not taking the first right answer keeping that sense of aliveness to it. So part of this is, is holding the question. You're not having to go right to the answer, but let me just keep listening. Let me keep receiving how the moment is. Remember the first talk this month, I talked about the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge wants to know the answer. It wants to be solid. Well, wisdom has a quality of ongoing engagement allowing the moment to reveal itself. In Joseph Goldstein's book, The One Dharma, he gives us an example of this, this naturalist who is training students. And his, his very um, kind of notorious first exercise that he would give a student a fish to look at and to study, okay, a fish that was in formaldehyde or, you know, kind of preserved. And... 
the idea was to train the person to see more and more deeply. And this, this person who's describing this exercise would look at it in five minutes. He knew everything there was to know about the fish. So he went back and told the teacher. And the teacher said, keep looking. And so he looked some more and he saw maybe something he didn't see before, the shape of it or the way that gills interfaced. And he was sure of that. And he said, keep looking. And this actually went on for like two days. Right? So he just kept looking more and more at this fish until finally he started to actually see it not through his mind's opinion and ideas, but seeing it in a fresh way. And then the, the teacher said, yes, that's it. That's it. Keep looking. Keep sensing. Another very skillful way to work with this quality delusion, just not believing everything we think, is from Byron Katie, the work. So it's a, it's a very powerful way to, to practice. And she has four core questions that when we're really caught in something, we're really caught in some struggle, some sense of identification, we know how things should be or how we think they are, she invites us to ask first, is it true? The answer to this, the first two questions is just one syllable. Is it yes or no? Is this true? Can you absolutely know that it's true? Right? So if it's true and you think it's true, can you absolutely be sure that it's true? And then how do you react? What happens when you believe that thought? And who would you be without that thought? Who would you be without that thought? That's this question of wisdom. So we take something we think is so true and so absolute, and you start to work with this. You start to listen, and you start to question that. And as you do that, you start to find these layers of delusion start to fall away. There's been a number of times when my wife and I get in a little bit of a, you know, just where our hearts are a little hardened, we're a little upset with something like, it's typically like, you know, I did the dishes last, it's your turn, or something like that. But that, you know, it can really get a little charged, or a little, you know, we're not listening. And we actually start to listen to each other. It's amazing to see the projection of what I think is true. And you might say it, and hear it, and hear the other person's. Then you start to listen more deeply underneath that, and the deeper layers, to finally you see, that was just my limited projection of the truth. My limited understanding. Right? That's seeing through delusions, seeing through the convincing thoughts to actually what, they, what is there. And the final way I'll suggest is there's some other ways, of course, is simply listening to the feedback of life. Listening to the feedback of life. And here's a, here's a shortcut for you. If you're confused about where delusion is and how it's showing up, next time you, feel, you find yourself suffering, delusion is probably part of the equation. There's probably some misinterpretation, some charge action, some fogginess, some unclarity that led to that suffering. So how do you meet that? How do you open to it? You know, that sense of taking responsibility and ownership of things. And we're talking really the second arrow stuff. It's not, if I stub my toe, there's going to be a level of pain anyone's going to feel. But when I start to rant and write letters to the establishment, and you know, why did you leave this brick here, 
that's going into that second arrow. That suffering, that added on suffering, that's the whole arena of the Buddhist teaching. And that's all optional. Right? So when you find yourself suffering, when you're struggling, just step back a little bit and see, what am I taking as being true? What might, be, what I'm, what might I be mis- in, misinterpreting? Listen to that feedback of life. And then also, the other side of it, when there's a sense of peace and ease, connection, intimacy, joy, that's not conditional, not so much based on going to Disneyland kind of joy, but just that quiet joy. That's also feedback, that you're actually acting from a place of wisdom, and delusion is much quieter. It's not so active. Mara has been seen and has slunk away. This is really about the transformation of delusion into wisdom. Into wisdom. I'm going to end with this this phrase that you see a lot in, in the suttas. And this is often after the Buddha has shared some teaching and someone went from this place of being really confused, caught by delusion, to having clarity. And this is the ending of many suttas. And this person says, Magnificent, Lord, magnificent. Just as if he were to place upright what was overturned, to reveal what was hidden, to show the way to one who was lost, or to carry a lamp into the dark so that those with eyes could see forms. In the same way, there has the, in the same way, has the Blessed One, the Buddha, through many lines of reasoning, made the Dharma clear. Then I go to the Blessed One for refuge, to the for the Dharma, and the community of Sangha. May the Blessed One remember me as a lay follower who has gone for him for refuge from this day forward for life. All right, can we just sit quietly for a couple moments, and then we'll have a chance for some questions or sharing. Okay, so we have a chance for any questions you might have. And here in the room, if you um, you don't mind coming up, we can get on the mic. Okay, Marco, come on up. Yeah, I can hear you online if you use that. Okay, so I was watching the movie Little Buddha, and there's a scene where the Buddha is talking to Mara, and he says, Architect, don't build your house here, meaning ego, I believe. And um, I want to know what that, if you, if you know much about that and what it would have to do with delusion. Sure. Yeah, so that line um, is said to be the first line the Buddha spoke after he awakened. And there's the full of it, the full part from the Dhammapada. So house builder, you have been seen. You know, your, your architect, you know, so it's, it's a paraphrasing of that or a different translation. It talks about your ridge poles can't be put together and they're gonna, it's basically he's talking about the mechanism, the unseen mechanism that created that sense of self and the illusion of self that's finally being seen through so deeply, so fully, it's fallen away. And so that's like that architect is, you know, like it's designing and creating. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And, and so we can practice in a way that kind of dismantles that, but until we see what's underneath that, what's actually the mechanism or the architect or Mara that keeps creating that sense of self, it's just going to keep coming back. Because self often suffers anyway. That's right. It's part of suffering. 
That's right. Yes, that's in the second noble truth is the true, you know, the truth of the origination of dukkha, of suffering. And one way of looking at that is really through dependent origination, that sense, that selfing, that creating that self. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Thank All right. You. Thank you. Okay, Carla and Ian. Yeah. Hi, Tim. I have a question about something that's a little off topic, but I think it's related. Um, I recently heard another Buddhist teacher whom I don't know well very well, and it doesn't really matter who it is, was just someone online. I heard her talk about um, the topic was the inner critic. So both like being very self-critical and being very critical of others um, and talking about how to work with that. And the question whether um, loving kindness practice would be helpful, um, or I think this is my words, but more specifically, just something like focusing on the good instead of self-criticizing, maybe having a mantra, focusing on what's good about me or what's good about the person I feel critical about. Um, and this teacher was saying she didn't think it was very helpful to jump directly to trying to cultivate the opposite of the criticism. She thought it was way more helpful just to try and look clearly at the criticism, to really see, see it clearly. So I think this is related to delusion. And I kind of linked it to experiences I've had with trying to use meta. And I've noticed, you know, I've usually turned to, I don't have a regular meta practice. I've never really connected very deeply with it, but I've tried it at times when I was, you know, really suffering the most. And for me, it always had an element, I always let, was left with the feeling of, oh, I'm trying to just kind of replace my suffering thoughts with these nice thoughts, like wishing myself well, but it never felt like, it always felt like I was just kind of trying to look away rather than achieving any real kind of benefit. So I'd be curious to hear whether you think like there can be an element of delusion in maybe choosing the wrong type of practice at the wrong time. Sure. Yeah. Well, certainly the last way thing you said, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, taking, choosing the wrong practice at the wrong time because any, any practice has its place where it's really uh, helpful and very skillful, and it can also be misapplied or applied in a, in a way that's actually coming in a way that perpetuates suffering or coming from delusion. And we could almost say anything we talk about is really looking at delusion from just different angles. So that that what you what you are reported hearing from this this teacher is that. You kind of try when you have that inner critic and just trying to apply a kind of the wish, not so much the wishful thinking, but a positive thinking or some kind of antidote. And we have the meta can sometimes be used for that. Doesn't really get to the, the core of it. And I would say that's that's true. And I would also say that sometimes those kind of skillful ways or those things that we kind of go opposite of that or cultivating uh, positive mind states or generosity or kindness can actually be very beneficial because it helps to calm down the system. Because when the critic is really active, it's, it's really happy to criticize itself. 
right? Like, how, have you ever found yourself judging the fact that you're judging yourself? You know, it's like, okay, you know, the, it's like that. That's how kind of insidious and how deeply it's programmed in us is that that sense of, of judgment, it just kind of co-ops the very way that we see things and it has such a strong belief. So that's why some other practices like metta, if it's really done sincerely or something like working with generosity or seeing the good of things can help kind of calm down the system, allow more clarity to start to rise. I do think eventually there is a, we have to see it in a clear way, the illusion of that critic, the, you know, the illusion of that whole pattern, and that then it falls away. And sometimes, you know, for different conditions, different people, we need to kind of lead with one versus the other. You know, I, I remember Joseph Goldstein talking about being in Asia and his teacher was seeing that he was kind of caught in the critic. So he said, okay, go to your room and reflect on your, your ethical conduct. Right. So the intention behind those instructions were, was for Joseph to really cultivate the kind of, okay, I really do good here. I really am kind. I really am generous. But Joseph, like most of, many of us, actually reflected all of the times he wasn't ethical or wasn't kind. So it just kind of made things worse. So I think bottom line is, is kind of like the, you have a sense of the overall direction, but even that direction kind of, Sometimes we're kind of approximate in that direction. We're not like, let's say we want to go due north, and we're like 20 degrees plus or minus. We're kind of going, you know, northeast and northwest. We're kind of not quite sure which way to go, but we're kind of heading that way. As our practice clarifies, we actually that true north becomes much more precise and and accurate. And it's still, it's a process. So we have that kind of approximateness quality. We start to know the effects of our, we start to notice the effects. Like, okay, if I, I look at Matta and it feels like I'm kind of just saying this or I'm kind of pushing away the self-critic, then it's not quite the right practice. Either the way you're doing it or maybe in itself, it just, you need a different practice. Because it is kind of a very direct way just to open to the critic and to be able to open in a way that's not seeing it from judgment, that's not seeing it from greed or hatred, but really from wisdom, from compassion. Many of us, we often need to kind of learn how to do that, how to get there. Does that make sense? I kind of talked all over the place there. Does that? Well, that all makes sense. And I'm just realizing, you know, sometimes the challenge for me is, okay, I just want to look at the difficult emotions or thoughts directly but there's so much resistance. So, you know, I'm somehow, because it's so charged, there's, I'm seeing myself resisting it, which is kind of stopping me from really just letting it be there and just really looking at it. So I I have the impression that the longer I practice, as I was saying, I kind of had this intuitive feeling when I was just using metta to kind of avoid dealing with the difficulty and when I wasn't, when it was really helpful. So maybe it's just a matter of the longer we practice, we develop a little bit more intuition when we're sincerely practicing or not. Yeah, it's a lot of it's trial and error. You know, we just kind of notice it through the effects of it. We start, it becomes more and more obvious. But the, you kind of, you know, summarize that in a really important piece is that when there's a lot of resistance towards something, 
it is hard to open to to really just directly turn toward it. My, when I'm working with my own mind and I'm working with students, I often kind of listen for what's the unseen assumption or bias or idea that's kind of operating, right? So like with self-judgment, there's often a sense of, I don't want it to be here, right? I want to get rid of it, right? So sure, we do want to get rid of it, but that attitude of seeing with it in order to get rid of it tends to make the whole thing a little tighter, right? It's a little, you know, get kind of locks down and resist you. But if you actually, my favorite um, work around that is actually to bow toward it and say, thank you for how much you've served me. Thank you, you know, really sincerely thank it and appreciate how much of a tool you've cultivated there in the inner critic. You know, it's probably helped you succeed in some areas. When you, when you really do that, when you feel, and not just do it, go through the motions, but you do it in a way that you actually feel something shift internally. Like you're, you take a breath. It's like, okay. Like you've let the resistance have softened a bit. Then you're not fighting against it, but you're actually relating to it. You're actually observing it. That sets the stage for a deeper seeing of it. Right? And then you start to, and here's the tricky part, is you start to see it more clearly without any agenda, without trying to change it or get rid of it. But let me just see how all this is operating. I see you, Mara. Let me see all those aspects. You know, and, and you start to do that, It's you start to gradually, all that process of observing it, guess what? You're not so lost in it. You're actually observing that quality of critic, observing that quality of that self-judgment. That sense of observation, you start to see, well, this isn't actually me. It's just a pattern that's arising. It's a habit that's come up. Sometimes we can see the connection with our past or our childhood. But the important thing is we see how it really distorts the very way we see the world. And it starts at times you see through it. You see, wow, there's a moment of complete acceptance of this moment. Right? That gives you that clarity. Okay, that's, that's the direction I want to go. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Carla. Yeah, we could probably spend all our time just working on that very thing of, of dissolving and seeing through that inner critic. That'd be time well spent. Yes, do you mind coming up? I just wanted to share. I just wanted to share something that I feel uh, uh, relates to this. So I I had a morning routine where I would uh, go downstairs and clean the kitchen and make coffee for my parents and then eat breakfast. But I found that um, you know the Buddha talks a lot about solitude and how important that is. And I'm here in the kitchen and everyone's buzzing around getting breakfast and I'm getting irritated because people are getting in the way and stuff. And I'm like, well, this isn't really solitude. Uh, so I, I decide I'm going to wake up very early, do all this before anyone gets up, and, um, and then eat a single huge meal um, and then go to my room and then I won't have to see anyone uh, 
all the time. I'll just be completely in solitude. Um, and so I started doing that. And um, I found that after eating that huge meal, I got really drowsy. Um, and, you know, I would go upstairs and I would work. And uh, I, I have to study. And uh, being drowsy and studying don't really go well together. And so all of a sudden, that, that coffee that I made for my parents got really tantalizing. And um, But at the same time, it's like sense restraint, you know? You're not supposed to um, indulge in pleasures um, unnecessarily, I guess. Uh, so I was like wrestling with myself about this coffee every morning. Um, like, oh, I need it. It's for my study. Oh, it's sense restraint. I can't have this. You know, and like sometimes I would have it and I'd be like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. What have I done? And um, uh, like I would be like looking up furiously, like how much caffeine is in one cup of coffee. I, I like weighed out like how much coffee and grams I was putting in. I like looked up the espresso strain, the strain of coffee. Anyway, I was just obsessed. Um, and then eventually I was like, okay. Scrap it. I'm going to eat lunch in the evening instead so I don't have this drowsiness. But anyway, there was just like this this huge doubt like, oh, should I change my whole routine now? Mm. You know, now I have to change when I wake up, when I go to sleep. So I have these this like all the time where I'm just I'm just not sure yeah. like how to handle this situation, you know. Okay. So one hand, you know, I certainly appreciate your sincerity of you know trying to follow the practice and and really take it to a, a deep way, and you know what you're describing, you know, if it reminds me a little bit of the the Buddha when he's trying to figure out how to to practice and how he kind of went to different extremes until finally he found this middle path, you know, this middle path. So I would be we want to be aware of when we take one part of the teachings, like, okay, don't be, you know, caught in sense pleasure and, you know, that sense of solitude in isolation without seeing the whole thing. Because the Buddha also said many things contrary to that. Maybe not so much to being lost in sense pleasure, but just around, he actually talked about home homeowners, people who live at home, you know, not monks or nuns. It's fine to enjoy pleasures. You know, it's okay to do that. You just be also be aware of the drawbacks and when you get lost in that. He also talked about um, there was this famous exchange with him and Ananda, um, Ananda, and Ananda says, you know, the sangha that must be at least half of the holy life. And the Buddha said, no, it's actually all of the holy life. So that kind of goes contrary to the solitude. I would think of it as have here, especially, you know, when you're at home and you're with your parents and you're studying and working and all that stuff, give yourself little parts of practice, like say maybe an hour a day, I'm going to practice really clearly. And the rest of the day, it's going to be more informal practice. You know, practice like how do I, how do I still be a Buddhist even though I'm talking to my parents? How do I still have meals in different times and, and make the whole thing a little bit more, um, little lighter. And then, you know, if you have a chance, go on a retreat and then you can just practice whole hog there and, you know, eat one meal a day or two meals a day and not eat afternoon and 
and have lots of solitude, but kind of see that as part of the practice, not the whole of the practice, because we don't want to have, um, you know, all those, think about that middle path. What's the middle way of practicing? Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, Greg, come on up. Uh, so I wanted to just revisit something you said, because I, you know, you see a million types of, of uh, statues of the Buddha, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the one where he has, I think he has three fingers touching the ground, and I think that was the story you were telling. Right, yeah. But I didn't, still didn't quite understand, as much as it's a really powerful image, can you kind of give a little more detail? You know, the, the earth is my witness, or, you know, what right do you have? Well, sure, sure. The, the earth somehow figures into that. Yeah, there's kind of different ways we can explore that, but kind of tying back to some of the earlier questions just around, have you ever felt like you don't really belong? Belong someplace? Like, you know, I don't belong here, or I shouldn't be here. And sometimes what I do is I just, okay, I'm kind of occupying this little square of earth. You know, the earth is kind of completely accepting the fact that I'm here. It's like that that acknowledgement that here the earth is is even though I may not feel like I belong or all those doubts and self critic, like the earth is still saying, you can be here as long as you want. I mean, you can't be anywhere else than other than other than here on the earth. And so then we take take that that same kind of quality into awakening. We could def- define it as really coming home, really understanding the, the deep nature of what we are. It's less of a sense of attaining something and more of a sense of uncovering what's been forgotten, what's been obscured. And so like claiming the earth is like claiming the earth is a witness, claiming that how the, when you touch into the earth, there's a sense of the earth acknowledges that. You know, it, it doesn't, the earth doesn't care, you know, if you're in a bad mood or a good mood. It just is really connecting more to that essence of what you are. So I'm kind of going, you know, there's different, don't want to get too far out there, but it's it's just that sense of by the earth's witness, by the, you know, the solidity of the earth, the, the grounding of the earth, that's what I'm claiming. The moment of the earth, the reality of it. Yeah, the reality of that. Yeah. yeah. Very cool, yeah. thanks. You bet. All right, online, if you just throw up your virtual hand, I'll see that and... Back here in the room, you can do your physical hand. I may not see your virtual hand. Yes, come on up. Sandy. Hi, everyone. Um, When you were talking about following up on that feeling the earth piece of it, I was thinking delusion, how do I say this, like and your question around like, you know, what's actually happening now um, as a way of, and I, I guess I'm just looking to see if I'm thinking, you know, along the right lines or if this is just part of it, of 
that that which I can touch, you know, the, the earth, this chair, this mic, that is real. So it's the physical world that mm. breaks me out of the delusional thoughts. That's right. Yes, exactly. Yes. Okay. Because okay. that, that's a great way. Similar to what I've experienced with um, anxiety, which is scary thoughts going on right grounding in you know what are five things i can see what are five That's things right. i can touch what are five yes. things i can smell right so it brings me right back to like oh yeah all that other stuff isn't real um i'm lost in the delusion so i thought maybe part of that earth was like okay this exactly is, yes i'm grounded yeah exactly okay yeah, and that's a great way of, of working with, yeah, because de delusion, like when it's in that worry state or anxiety and panic, there's this whole, these whole worlds that we're creating, and they seem so vivid and so real. We just know this is what's going to happen. And if we can call ourselves back, that's that wisdom of seeing, okay, I'm caught in some delusion, I'm in confusion, calling ourselves back to what's actually here. And that's great, that concretely, what are five things I can connect with right here in this moment? So that's a, a question of wisdom is coming back into this present moment. And the earth, you know, feel, feeling the feet, feeling yourself breathe. And, right. and that's, that's exactly right. Okay. Um, and then my other piece of it was um, in uh, seeing clearly, you know, getting past the, through the delusion, seeing clearly is maybe this is like a philosophical question of some sort, but is that seeing clearly still perception of yes. anything other than you know what's real what's physical is all thought and perception okay so perception yeah that's there's different ways we can we can kind of get we can get very technical what it means by perception but we can think of it as as perceiving there's and there's also gradations of, of wisdom and delusion, right? So there's a functionality that we may be seeing something. Like I see a, this bell, and my mind, when I see it, I see the shape of it. I can say, okay, that's a circle, and this is a striker. I know what to do with it, and the sound is likely to make. That's all things I'm projecting on the, the moment. It happens to be all accurate and helpful and useful, but that's kind of like an arc, you know, it's like a template that if I, if I look at another person, I say, okay, that's so-and-so, and that's who they have been, and that's who they always will be, I've suddenly kind of constrained them, right? And so the perception, there's this, this sutta where the Buddha is instructing someone, and he's saying that simply in the seeing, there's just the seeing, right? So there's a this is going more to the kind of the deeper level of wisdom is just like there's a direct, immediate, you're perceiving it, but you're not following your mind's story around it, unless it's needed. You know, it's like, I don't want to go out and be on the train tracks and see this big light coming toward me and just opening, you know, I, I was like, okay, and the horns sound light, you know, I want to get off the train tracks. So there's also the discernment too. So it's, it's like we don't abandon that, but we also, it basically the absolute reality can hold the relative and the functionality of it. But when we're just in the relative, we don't have that perspective of the absolute. And we're more likely to be carried away by our fantasy and our worry. Yeah. 
Yeah, so with perception, yeah, play with it. Just like I like to do this with a, something like a tree. I look at a tree and I can have ideas of what that tree is. Maybe I know it's a Douglas fir and it's maybe 100 years old and it's circumference and da da da, da all these things, my, my history, my plan on it. Or I can go underneath that to the direct, what's really, what's the experience of seeing the tree right now, the immediacy of it. So they're both it's harder, yeah. you know, given that example, which I know is just an example, of course, but uh, I think it's harder when I'm you know, in relationships, like seeing someone clearly or seeing a situation clearly. Clearly, it's just my life experiences that is causing me to see that person in that way or the situation in that way, right? So... Yes, and you can acknowledge those and then see, you know, is that accurate in this moment, right? You can see the layering they put on another person, but ideally you're also kind of really present to your own experience. Like this is what I like to do when I'm talking to someone. You know, I may have like this idea, okay, their voice is going to sound like this, or this is the question they're going to ask. But all that I can see, that's all stuff I'm wanting to add but I'm also, what's actually here? What's actually here? And then also, what's the feedback from that interaction that's coming up right now in me? And you start to see, okay, there's a, there's a tension or there's an ease. And I start to, to trust, like when I'm actually connected and there's a sense of, you know, of intimacy or of understanding and sharedness. You know, that, it feels good. It feels like we're connected. But if I was like, you know, why are you asking that question? That's, sure. you know, that's a different way I go into, you know, I can sense that. Right. Yeah. Right, right. So it's actually okay. relationships and interpersonal action is a really powerful way to practicing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. And it's harder the more we know someone, right? Yes. You know, but oh, can I, true. yeah, but can I see, how are you today? You know, this is an interesting question. You know, can we actually answer that in a sincere way? Can we really listen in a sincere way? Beyond just the normal, oh, good, good, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Sandy. Okay, maybe one more if there's anyone out in the, the in person room or online. Okay, Monica. So I really thought this was going to be the day I will learn silence and not say anything, but maybe next time. Um, So I also wanted to comment on the story with the Buddha and uh, touching the earth uh, because it's really deeply powerful to me. And uh, it's really about what the story isn't about. So Buddha didn't say, uh, didn't become defensive or didn't become, uh, start composing an argument about why he is deserving. And that's exactly what I would have done. And uh, it's definitely a relationship story, because when you hear, who do you think you are, that you're deserving, this is kind of like the badness of relationships right there sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really uh, important to me because, you know, I think what Buddha had at that point is that he really knew himself. And so he didn't have to go to these arguments and uh, he could go to something really fundamental like the earth 
and not engage in this uh, kind of like argument about who uh, his his self worth. So I think we pretty much covered that, but I wanted to share that this is kind of how it resonated with me. Thank you, Monica. Yeah, that's a great way of saying it. Yeah, that's 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 a good that's a clearer answer than I think I gave. Yeah, that sense of just you don't have to argue, you don't have to to justify. It's like you just know, and that touching the earth is such a powerful way. And we touch the earth; it's always here. I remember one teacher talking about integrating life and practice, and his suggestion was just keep about. 10 or 20% of your awareness in your body while you're talking. Okay, we can do that. You can just feel your feet, feel your breath. You know, notice the this chest area. You know, notice when there's a little tightening, when there's a contraction, when there's an opening, when there's a warmth. All that helps keep us embodied, keep us connected to, to the moment. You know, and it's and that the more we do that, then there's that. You don't have to argue. You, you're touching that earth. All right, so thank you all for your, your questions and, and exploring wisdom from the delusion side of things.